At one point, I remember slamming my fist on his desk and saying, I am dying and I'm asking, no, I'm begging you if I can see the specialist. I am the reigning Olympic champion. I am in your office telling you I am dying and I will die on your watch if you do not make this happen. Hello and warm welcome to the stories we tell. I'm your host, Nitya Shanti, a teacher and facilitator of Conscious Living here at Round Glass. On this show, we share the gift of illuminating stories. Each week, you'll hear a life story from me and a special guest on a universal theme. Stories of self-acceptance, overcoming inconceivable odds, embracing change, and recognizing our limitless nature while honoring our humanity. Advocating for yourself can be difficult, even scary sometimes, especially when many of us are taught to not rock the boat. Be self-sufficient, be completely independent, but no one can be truly independent, can they? We all need help from others, both when we succeed and when we stumble. Yet, if we don't advocate for ourselves in those moments of struggle, those moments of discomfort, we may not be able to lift ourselves out of them. As the saying goes, many hands make light work. So I'd like to share an instance from my life where I had lived as a monk for about six years and I came back and began just exploring how I could continue with my life. Somehow the monastic form was no longer matching where I was. While I loved the teachings, that particular form wasn't matching. And I wanted to learn and explore beyond the constraints of a monastic institution. And so in that process, people also invited me to share my experience and talk to them. And it led to some small gatherings, large gatherings. And little by little, there was a momentum where I was being invited to speak and teach and things like that. And at one point, I began to realize that I'm trying to do everything by myself. I'm trying to answer on the emails. I'm trying to uh, organize things, let people know about the various events that are planned. And more and more, I was getting drawn into the management or administrative aspect of what I was doing. And it required a willingness to take a step back and say, what's exactly going on here? What really are my strengths? What really am I good at? What really am I here to do? And I had to, in a way, let go and allow myself to ask for help. And something beautiful happened as I, as I, as I asked for help and I said, would, be, would there be someone in this community willing to help me with certain aspects of my work? Very quickly, people put their hands up. And people in different cities in India and all over the world actually said, please come, we'd love to organize a gathering for you. In fact, it got to the point where I realized that my real strength was the sharing, teaching, facilitating, whatever you want to call it. And so very rarely were any programs organized in my own city because in my city, people expected me to organize it. <laughs> but when I travel, then people would step up and they would take that responsibility. And that was a kind of letting go for me. I had to let go of that desire to do everything on my own, control everything. And that was an example of just tapping into the larger support structure that was available if I allowed myself to do it. So truly, Many hands do make light work and advocating 
for what is coming through in one's intuition, one's guidance can be difficult, even scary. But it's something which can really open up our life in ways we hadn't imagined before. Today's guest, Tiana Madison, is a three-time Olympic gold medalist for Team USA in track and field. But even a world record holder needs a support system. The amazing achievements of her life came with tragic lows that she suffered privately. It wasn't until 2020 when the appearance of a life-threatening mystery illness while training for what she hoped would be her third Olympic appearance that Tiana learned the power of community, advocating for herself and asking for help. Very warm welcome, Tiana. I am so happy to be with you. We'd love to know <laughs> your story and what was this challenge that you faced and how did you get the, the clarity to go ahead and ask for help instead of suffering privately? Yes, first I want to dispel the myth that Olympic champions have it all together <laughs> because <laughs> the truth is we absolutely have to have, it takes a village. And one of the things that I like to tell people all the time is that you might see me on the podium receiving my medal by myself, but if I could, there'd be like 30 people up there with me and we'd all be celebrating and popping champagne together because it took that many people to get me to that point. And um, it's, it's really, really critical for me. This is literally my approach to training and honestly why I was able to access such an elite level of performance. All the way back in high school, I wasn't the most talented athlete. I, I knew I wasn't very, you know, I wasn't one of the top athletes in the nation. So I knew that I'd have to ask somebody who knew more than me <laughs> to teach me so that I could get a little bit better. I won world championships at 2005 at 19 years old. It was like, everybody wow. thought it was a fluke beginner's luck <laughs> and I won another title in 2006 but then I experienced a type of burnout and for seven years I was just mediocre and the performances were lackluster I really had lost my way and I was very much like well I'm a world champion you know chest all puffed up and trying to do all the things that I was doing before hoping that it would get me back there and being way too arrogant to say okay none of this is working we need a new plan and so for seven years I was just in the dumps so when I made my first Olympic team that was when I was broken enough kind of like how you felt broken enough to be like okay I need help like this isn't working I need help and being willing to look in the dark places, in the corners that I wasn't willing to look at before. For example, I was training four to six hours a day, but I also was at fast food restaurants two or three times a day. And that's not congruent, <laughs> that's not aligned. Or I wasn't sleeping enough hours in order to recover from the training session. But I wouldn't look at that part. It was like, oh, maybe it's my coach that's not good enough. Or maybe I need a change of scenery or I need to move to a different state. So finally, when I decided to look at myself and then ask for help with all those places that weren't optimized, did I become a better person and athlete? And that's really the path that I was on and why I made the team in 2012, why I was world number one in 2014, why I got a new world championship title in 2015, made an Olympic team in 2016 and got another medal in 2017. And in that whole time I was suffering privately because I was in an abusive marriage. 
and I was using, you know, my community on the track, you know, my team of people. And when I say team of people, I have a mental conditioning coach, a chiropractor, a massage therapist, a strength and conditioning coach, my actual track coach, you know, like all of these people to, you know, just get me through it. And then 2020 comes along and I had found the strength and courage to leave that uh, abusive situation by once again asking for help and there was a lot of shame around that because we don't often talk about the things that go on in our intimate relationships but I asked for help and I got out of that situation thinking that everything was you know going to trend upward because we often believe like once we shut the door on something negative nothing else negative should ever happen (laughs) Um, that's not how life works but that's kind of where my head was I began to train for the next Olympics with the hopes that I would defend my long jump title, that I would defend um, our 4x100 meter relay title. And my body just was not cooperating. Mm. My legs would twitch and spasm all night so I wasn't recovering and I wasn't sleeping. And I was just fatigued and tired and I had sprained an ankle the year before. And sprained ankles are usually, you know, over and done with in a few weeks, but it had been a year and this ankle just would not heal. As an Olympian, I had access to the U.S. Olympic Committee and uh, their training center and their medical resources. So I was going to the medical center, basically like to get a, a physical, like, hey, I'm going for the Olympics. Let's make sure nothing's really wrong with me. And we learned I was anemic. So we began to treat the anemia with iron infusions, which... Uh, was helpful for some time, but eventually I I asked the team doctor, like, something made me anemic. And it turned out like I was having irregular um, menstrual cycles with a lot of bleeding. Like at one point it was 45 days straight of just heavy and like, no wonder I had no energy, but they weren't receptive to what I was saying because uh, to them, I was just a girl with period issues, you know? So they didn't really take it too seriously. So I kept getting iron infusions and I kept getting worse. I had a little bit of energy for a while, but with the hemorrhaging still happening, I wasn't catching up and I just could see my dream of returning to the Olympics slipping away. And I began to blog about it um, on my personal page because I was just frustrated and that's how I expressed myself. A lot of women reached out to me privately and said, I think you need to maybe see a gynecologist. And, you know, I was just like, oh, maybe they keep telling me it's anemia. And our team doctor honestly was a chiropractor. And so with the support of those women who I didn't even know, I went back to Colorado Springs and I said, I would like to see a gynecologist. And I got a little bit of pushback, but I felt like I had the strength of my sisters online who were like, (laughs) do it, do it, do it. That day in the office, trying to advocate for seeing the gynecologist the doctor surprisingly really was resistant to that and I had to at one point I remember slamming my fist on his desk and saying I am dying and I'm asking no I'm begging you if I can see the specialist I am the reigning Olympic champion I am in your office telling you I am dying and I will die on your watch if you do not make this happen And that was the first time he kind of looked at me like, oh, this might be very serious. Three hours later, I was having surgery, having a tumor removed. Oh, wow. That was causing the hemorrhaging in my uterus. 
that was the day that my body began to heal. But it took from the first time I stepped foot in Colorado saying, you know, I think something's wrong with me to that surgery was nine months. So you finally had to stand up for yourself and really say that I need this and I need this now. And that's when things began really moving. And I only really had the courage to do it because I had like a bunch of internet friends that (laughs) had, you know, equipped me with the vocabulary and like the things to ask for. And I only had that because I dared to talk about something that was happening in my private life. So it's like they saved me because I was willing to talk about it. So in a way, you're being vulnerable and having the courage to share uh, things that normally people just bottle up is actually what led to your almost, you could say, saved your life, actually. Absolutely saved my life. I think my surgeon told me that uh, I was so depleted and I had so little of my own blood left. He strongly felt because I was continuing to train that I was a week away from organ failure and possibly a coma because I was just pushing it to the limit. So yeah, they absolutely saved my life. So Tiana, tell us about the return to the Olympics. Well, it was an attempt to return to the Olympics. (laughs) In 2020, COVID had just emerged. The Olympic Committee was saying, nothing to see here, the Olympics will happen as planned. But I had just had this surgery and I was actually in recovery and I was just watching time slip away from me because it takes a lot to get a body into Olympic form to make the team, let alone earn a medal, let alone the gold medal um, by the time the Olympics were to take place. So I had the surgery in December and the Olympics were in July. As a practitioner of yoga, I very much was You know, everything is as it should be. No effort is wasted. This is what my body can do now. So I'm going to do what I can do for today. And that will be enough. And that's how I approached every day. Just realistically speaking, my body was not going to be ready for the 2020 Olympics. But COVID shut all that down and we got another year. (laughs) So for me, it was a blessing in disguise. Now, I didn't run to Twitter and say, yes, I got another year. You know, I, I kept it very quiet. But like for me and my family and close friends, they understood that like that was a blessing for me to get my body back online, to honor the trauma that it had been through by giving it the time it needed to truly recover. And so it gave me another year. And honestly, I got back extremely healthy. I did have to get a blood transfusion because my body just needed more help. And I had been really resistant to that. And my resistance wasn't for any like, you know, religious or ethical reasons, but because we have so many rules when it comes to drug use and doping in my sport, that blood transfusion is actually something you have to get permission for and fill out all this paperwork uh, or they'll accuse you of cheating. Finally, I just was like, this is something I need or I'm just not, I'm not going to be in the game at all. So I, I did that. And it really did make a difference. And I was able to heal. 36 years old. So like my shoe sponsors were like, oh, she's washed up. <laughs> she's a master's athlete. But I ended up having one of my faster seasons that I ever had. My body was completely healthy. And I went to the Olympic trials with a lot of confidence that I could pull it off except I did not know 
that I had gotten so healthy that I was pregnant. (laughs) 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 Yeah, so like the whole time that my body was doing all these things for all these years, my doctors had been saying, I don't produce enough hormones as an elite athlete to even carry a baby to term and all of these things that they were told. But my focus on getting healthy during that 2020, like trying to return to the Olympics, really completely undid all of these things that my body was struggling with. And I healed, but I healed too much. (laughs) 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 And so, yeah. So when I say my return to the Olympics did not happen, I competed at the Olympic trials. I was two months pregnant and didn't know it. I ended up breaking an American record on the fastest woman my age in American history to ever run the 100 meter dash. That's incredible. So I didn't return to the Olympics, but I must say like motherhood is a totally different game all together (laughs) yes absolutely especially because my son was born at 26 weeks so that was another experience being in the hospital with him every single day for almost 90 days all of these things just taught me so much about health because I was an elite athlete I've been an athlete since I was 12 years old so motherhood wasn't something that I was thinking about because I use my body to perform, to make a living. I did not have time or desire to have a family in this way. And so I didn't have a lot of confidence in my ability to mother once I learned that I would be. Having a child at 26 weeks and being in the hospital and having a team of nurses and doctors every day at the bedside with you and your infant, talking to you about what's gonna happen or what needs to happen next and teaching me how to be everything to this little human who is fighting for his life in front of me. I don't wish it on anyone, but it was the most profound experience I have ever had. It is what made me understand that I could do this Just like, you know, I get to the Olympic finals and I know I'm prepared, I can do this, I can compete for this medal. Being in that NICU and then walking out on his discharge day, I knew because I had my team of nurses and my team of doctors and specialists, I knew that I could be the best mom for my baby boy. You really tapped into the power of community, it seems, both in your sport as well as in the process of bringing up your kiddo. Is he healthy now, if I can ask? He honestly was never not healthy. He just... Wow. came early yeah he just came early yes. we're all fast over here we're just <laughs> fast <laughs> <laughs> when did you get into yoga and when did you train in, in yoga so i started out as a very casual yogi way back when i lived in la like i took a class at 24-hour fitness like way back when it was on the group fitness class and i remember The teacher went into a headstand and there was this woman next to me who effortlessly floated up into a headstand. And (laughs) I was like, I'm like the only elite athlete in here. I should be able to do a headstand. (laughs) So I went up into a headstand and fell and like completely wiped out myself and the person next to me. And I remember being so humbled and I didn't go back to class for quite some time. So that was like my first experience with yoga. (laughs) But I knew I had some work to do. I eventually came back to yoga because I was training really, really hard. And I knew intellectually that yoga could shift me into my parasympathetic system. 
because we were training my central nervous system. That's like all we do over here is we, we load it up, we rest up, and we wait for the overcompensation. That's how we get these mega performances. But I was never getting to the rest and digest phase in order to get that bounce back. I knew yoga could do that for me though. And so I began to take yoga class as a counter to my training sessions. So I would do yin yoga and just loved it. And I would be the girl with all the props, like just every prop, two or <laughs> all the two cushions, bolsters, cushions. all these blankets, <laughs> yes, all these configurations and belts and just, it was perfect for me. And when you have a really amazing teacher who isn't so much about the asana, who is really about the dharma of yoga, it just gets into you as they walk around the classroom and just talk to you and you're hearing about like the yoga sutras and you're just getting curious the whole time. Like I really just wanted to recover from training session, but my interest is peaked. And so I started to get curious about what else yoga could offer me. At the same time, I wasn't sleeping at home because that relationship was extremely volatile. I started yoga nidra so that I could sleep and not really sleep, but you know, yogic sleep. Yeah. And I would come yeah. out of those sessions really um, energized. And so it was honestly keeping me so that I could like survive my life. On the one hand, it was supporting my training. And on the other hand, it was surviving. It was helping me survive the life that I was living. And then I added vinyasa for active recovery days from track and field. So really it, be it began to support every element of my life. At one point on the mat, I heard like a, a whisper and it was my own voice. And I hadn't heard that voice in a long time. And it kind of, it made me understand that I was worth saving that all of this effort that I was putting in to all these things that I was doing meant that I was worth saving. And if I was worth saving, that meant I had to leave. And so that's kind of where the seed was planted that I deserved more. I credit yoga as saving my life. After I had that moment, I was like, I need to know more about this practice because it was such a transformative experience that I went to yoga teacher training, 200 hour yoga teacher training. And on the first day, as we introduce ourselves, I'm like, my name is Tiana. I'm here to learn, no interest in being a teacher, just very curious about the practice. <laughs> <laughs> and all the teachers were like, uh, okay, well, we'll talk to you in a couple years. And then of course I start teaching a few years later because I don't know, there's something about when a practice transforms you in such a way, in such an authentic way, not sharing it feels like a disservice. And I felt like, I could be of service teaching it to people who might be a little cynical or skeptical about what yoga could do, especially those people who are like me, like, I can't do the headstand. I can't do, you know, I can't do all of the different flexible shapes and stuff, but the practice is more than that. So that is my yoga journey as well. What first triggered you to teach? Where did you make that shift from? I'm just interested in this to I'm okay to teach. It was COVID that did that. I hadn't been teaching, but I was practicing a lot. And then COVID happened, so then I started practicing with my teachers online because everybody made that shift almost together. Then my followers on Instagram uh, would send me messages and the trend was just really negative and just very depressing. 
people were having a very, very hard time. And so finally, I made a post and I was like, all right, look, I'm a yoga teacher. <laughs> Let's just try this <laughs> yoga class together for free on Zoom never taught before it's free so you can't really be mad at me if it's horrible but let's just <laughs> get together and support each other and just like it feels bad out here right now let's just breathe and move together and so i started the breathe and move saturday class and it took off from there looks like it really enabled you to really step into your your enthusiasm to teach and to share this practice with people. I was so nervous about the like the teaching part, but honestly, it really was like just friends guiding each other. You know, Ram Das always says, you know, we're just walking each other home. It really is about sharing something that saved me. You know, teaching yoga is not teaching so much as it is just practicing together. I'm actually curious about your journey into Buddhism. Oh, yes. I was a born and raised Christian. I used to go to like Bible summer camps and like so very much entrenched in Christianity, but had a really, really difficult time during that seven year athletic slump I was telling you about earlier. And I remember having these conversations with my parents and one of their refrains, one of their constant refrains was, you know, like, your trust and your faith is too small. Like, this is a test and you're failing because you don't believe. And I always, it never felt right to me to be punished for my questioning or for my doubt. And so my mom, she said to me, it's like the story of Job in the Bible. God gave Satan permission to do all of those horrible things to Job because he was confident that Job would not sin against him even in all of that tragedy. And when I heard that, I was like, that's effed up. <laughs> like that is that is awful thing for a God to do. And my mom said, like, well, it was because God knew that Job was his son. And I remember telling her, I was like, well, if that's what God's children have to put up with, I would like to opt out. And so I said to her, I am no longer a Christian. And then she said, I'll pray for you. And then I said, good luck with that. I'm going to Barnes and Noble to find a new religion. <laughs> and so I did actually go to Barnes and Noble because I am a forever student. I am a major seeker and reading is where I begin. I start with curiosity. I find a book and then I just go down the rabbit hole. Long story short, I ran into the four noble truths. And the very first, there is suffering alleviated so much of my confusion and my pain and unburdened me because now it's not personal. Now it's not a failure on my part that I'm suffering. All I needed was that acknowledgement that wow. there was suffering. And from that moment forward, I became very much a student and practitioner of Buddhism. And, and that also really changed my perspective. And I think it can make people better Christians as well the compassion for yourself and others that that Buddhism brought out in me has changed my life. I've never heard of anyone saying, I'm going to Barnes and Nobles to find a new religion. It's <laughs> 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 <That's> amazing. <laughs> That's so cool. In my case, I uh, came across the Buddha's teachings in school because they taught it in school. 
But the way they taught it in school actually didn't resonate. In fact, I found it instead of saying right speech, right action, they said perfect speech, perfect action, mm. which I think is not a very good translation. And I said I can't be that perfect in my speech and my action and my livelihood and my. So in fact, I was actually put off a little bit. It was only later on when I came across the practical application in a form for meditation course that's when I could really begin to relate to it. And that's when it suddenly made a lot of sense. And I and, I, and same with you. I I've always been someone who asks a lot of questions. the fact that they welcomed my questions they never once made me feel that it's wrong to ask questions that it's wrong to not buy what they were saying immediately and to challenge them you know i found that very very uh, refreshing and helpful the famous kalama sutra of the buddha where he says that don't just believe something because it's been passed down don't just believe something because it's written in some book reflect on it and see if it agrees with your reasoning with your understanding and then you should follow it and uphold it not just because it's been passed down very refreshing teaching yes. from 2500 years ago. Yes, exactly. That comforted me so much because so much of our lives people ask us to just accept things as gospel truth or at face value and punish you for asking those questions. But you can't ask for help. Asking for help is you asking a question. And if we if we live in a society that discourages questioning or even being able to say I don't know the answer. I don't think this is right. Can you help me understand? I mean, we're I think that's why a lot of us are are stuck. Okay, now a different question. When you introduce yourself, when people get to know that you're an Olympic gold medalist, what is the response of people? <laughs> I usually don't lead with it because <laughs> I It's not that I'm shy about it, but it is something that I had to learn. It's what I do, it's not who I am. And so I stopped right. leading with it because I am way more interesting in my opinion than <laughs> that. But as soon as it comes out, because it always yeah. comes out, whether it's me or like someone else comes up and it's like, "Oh, did you tell him about your Olympic gold medal?" It's like, "Oh." It completely hijacks the conversation. And now we're talking about what was it like in Rio? And, Is it real gold and did you bite the medal? You know, all those questions that I'm happy to answer, but I'm happy to answer them after, you know, you've gotten to know me a little bit. <laughs> I love that. Is there anything else, Diana, that you'd like to share uh, with our audience today? Yes, I really want everyone to understand that strength looks different on everybody. Strength for you might look different today than it did yesterday and tomorrow. Sometimes that strength is being able to say I can't do it. I can't do this right now or I need support because you cannot get to the podium, you can't get to the finish line, you can't even get to tomorrow until you can fully acknowledge where the hell you are today. It's just as important for an elite athlete on day 1 of practice to understand that they are not in shape so that they can get to that point where they're in shape. It's the same thing for us in our regular lives. If you cannot take honest stock of where you are and then reach out for, you know, the things you're bad at. Like I don't have food discipline, but diet is really really important to me. And so I have to ask people, please don't buy sour patch kids. Please don't buy the <laughs> chips. Don't bring them into the house, please. I need your help because if you do that, I'm going to eat them. <laughs> you know? And like some people, some people look at that as like, or you could just be strong enough to be disciplined and not do it. and i say or i can be smart enough to never let them get to the house in the first place by exactly. asking so what's the difference the end result is the same 
So like do what you have to do, including ask for help to get to where you wanna go. Because in the end, nobody's gonna shame you for needing help getting there. Nobody in the history of my nine medals that I have has said, oh, but you had help getting those nine medals. (laughs) No. So I just want people to just to be okay with being who they are. And if you need support, take it. That's what we're here for. Beautiful, Tiana. I had a sense of really feeling your depth and your clarity and your vulnerability and the amazing journey that you've been on. I love how you have embraced all these parts of yourself and how you've had a chance to get quiet enough to listen to that still inner voice which guided you at a very important time in your life. Also the courage to stand up for yourself at a time when no one was listening and to really take the decisive actions that really saved your life. So really thank you for being here today and for sharing your experience. I think a lot of people are going to be inspired by this. And I don't know how many people have had a chance to listen in depth to an Olympic medalist, so gold medalist. So I think a lot of people will have an insight that you're a human being just like us. And even though you've trained really hard and you've brought yourself up to an elite level, you have learned to navigate the human side of yourself and the limitations that you found in yourself by being smart about it and not criticizing and blaming yourself for it, but being intelligent about, okay, I know these are my weaknesses and what can I do with the help I have and how can I change my environment to work around them, to bring out the best in myself and bring out the best in others. So thank you very much, Tiana Madison. Thank you. This has been such an incredible conversation. I really appreciate it. Tiana, where can people find more about you and your work? You can find me at my website, tianab.com. That's T-I-A-N-N-A-B-E-E. or on Instagram at tiana.t.madison. Thank you all for listening. Tune in next week for a brand new episode of Stories We Tell. Don't forget to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're looking for new ways to explore conscious living, then do subscribe and join me on the Round Glass Living app. In addition to this podcast, you can find courses, classes, recipes, music, and much more to help you make positive changes while doing what you love. Until next time, I'm Nitishanti. Goodbye. The stories we tell is a part of Round Glass. Holistic well-being at your fingertips. Find out more at roundglass.com.